Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Last week, for the first time, we achieved well over half a million views. That's views alone. We've no idea who's listening on FM who's listening on AM, who's listening on the internet, but it must be hundreds of thousands of people, which means that we're getting closer, much closer, to that magic number of one million viewers and listeners, all are part of the mother of all talk shows, which I set here six months ago. From a standing start, we have achieved quite astonishing progress. And the reason is not just because I'm reasonably good at this and because my friends through the glass are extremely good at what they do, but because the whole world knows that the so-called mainstream media acts as a prison. I was going to say prism, but I mean prism, locking out ideas that don't fit into the prevailing orthodoxy, locking in the practitioners of politics within the confines of that narrow dictatorship of the prevailing orthodoxy. And we don't. We have broken away from all that. We have kicked the jail down. We're free, free to air and free to speak. It was an idea that time had come. Now, many ideas come and go. Sometimes they go up like a rocket and come down like a burnt stick. Is that the fate of Corbynism? That's one of the themes of what we'll be talking about this evening. I listen with great care to all the post-mortems of the general election, which led to the lowest number of Labour MPs since 1935 and the biggest Conservative share of the vote since Margaret Thatcher in 1979. And if you only listen to those post-mortems, you would conclude that the game is up. But it's very far from up. We have to accentuate some important points. First of all, Boris Johnson lifted the Conservative share of the vote by 1%, precisely 1%. Jeremy Corbyn lost a lot of parliamentary seats, but actually Jeremy Corbyn's vote just a week or so ago was higher than Tony Blair's last vote in his last winning general election, higher than his successor, Gordon Brown's vote, higher than his successor, Ed Miliband's vote. So whilst the seat hall is disappointing to say the least to Mr. Corbyn, the vote is actually better than Blair, Brown and Miliband achieved in the three general elections 
before Jeremy Corbyn took over. Secondly, there is absolutely no case at all for arguing that it was Corbyn and Labour's socialist politics that led to the result that was so disappointing to all of Mr. Corbyn's supporters because Corbyn in the previous election, just two years before, had put forward virtually identical left off center politics, not as left as was painted, not as left as Michael Foote for starters in 1983, but a left-wing program at the election in 2017 got the best Labour result, the biggest lift in the share of the vote since Clement Attlee in 1945. And the manifesto in 2019, whilst far too long and with far too many goodies in it, gimmicks in it, such that it was no longer memorable before the ink had dried, was no more left-wing than the one previously in 2017. So the idea that it was the left-wing politics what done it simply doesn't fly, in my opinion. It was Brexit what done it. It was the gigantic, portentous Labour U-turn on Brexit that cost Jeremy Corbyn the election. That much is screamingly obvious to me, and indeed I predicted it for two long years, losing many Corbynista friends along the way who seem to imagine that you're being loyal to your friend if you let them drive the wrong way down the motorway. You're being loyal to your friend if you don't grab the keys or attempt to grab the keys and turn the steering wheel back into the right direction. Well, if that's loyalty, I don't want any part of that because I'm not loyal to any individual. I'm loyal to the ideas that Jeremy Corbyn was supposed to be spearheading. And when he allowed himself to be shackled, his limbs to be broken, to be strapped to a horse like El Cid and ride out at the head of an army that was no longer his army, indeed never was his army, namely the hundreds, 650 Labour candidates in the election, I knew that it was doomed and it was my duty as a free-thinking, free-speaking man to say so. I make no apology at all about that, but neither will I allow history to be rewritten. And now I come to the Labour leadership election, or the donkey derby, as I have dubbed it. It has begun farcically. Let me go through the runners and riders. Syriatum. I could start at the sublime, if there was anyone sublime, but I'll start at the ridiculous. David Lamy has just announced that he is going to be the first black and minority ethnic candidate to be leader of the Labour Party, except he isn't. Diane Abbott ran for the leadership of the Labour Party against Ed Miliband. And the last time I looked, she was from the black and minority ethnic communities. Moreover, David Lamy is one of those who did most to absolutely destroy Labour's position 
in the Midlands and in the North, and if Labour picks him, it's goodnight, Irene. David Lammy is running on the platform of care for refugees. But David Lammy's votes in Parliament have caused more refugees than almost any other member of Parliament. He is a serial offender. He is a repetitive warmonger. He's voted for every war, proselytized for every war, and voted against any inquiries into the wars he voted and proselytized for, which caused the massive flow in refugees over which he now cries his crocodile tears. David Lamy says that he represents people of color. But David Lamy's votes in Parliament caused the deaths of more people of color in the wars hitherto mentioned that he voted and championed and still votes and champions today. He's also a signed up supporter of an apartheid state. And therefore, as someone who's not in the Labour Party, who has no reason to wish it well, in a way, I hope they pick David Lammy. Or they could pick Jess Phillips, Jacob Rees-Mogg's bosom buddy. They could pick Jess Phillips, who spent the last four and a half years trying to, politically speaking, murder the leader of her own party, whom she now excoriates as the man responsible for losing the election. Well, anybody would lose an election with hundreds of MPs stabbing them in the back, and one of them, Jess Phillips, stabbing him openly in the front, as she herself said that she would. Or you could vote for Yvette Cooper. She's in the race too. She's another serial warmonger. She's one of the leaders of the Labour Party that abstained on the welfare reform bill, which beggared hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people. She abstained on it. She said it was time for Labour to fundamentally change course in a right-wing Blairite direction. You could choose Yvette Cooper, or Jess Phillips, or David Lammy. Or you could go for Sir Keir Starmer. He was even more damaging than David Lammy to Labour's election prospects because Sir Keir, the former director of public prosecutions, who did so much to keep Julian Assange holed up in the embassy in London, who did so much to try and persuade the Swedish authorities not to drop their vindictive, fictitious pursuit of Julian Assange on the so-called Swedish rape charges that never were. Sir Keir Starmer was the primary architect of the very policy U-turn that cost Labour the election. Now he wants you to vote for him to do as leader to the whole party what he successfully achieved as the so-called Brexit secretary, the actual anti-Brexit secretary, 
under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Now, his Wikipedia entry has been artfully uh, uh, edited by the usual suspects to uh, exclude the rather important information that Sir Keir is a multi-millionaire with a North London constituency who supports, until now, Britain's membership of the European Union. Does that sound like a winning ticket to you? Or you could try his North London neighbour, Lady Nuggy, otherwise known as Emily Thornberry. You know that mad woman that turned up at the Labour Party conference bedecked in a blue dress with gold stars around her neck, aping the European Union flag, the woman that took a picture of an England flag in a by-election a couple of years ago and had to resign from the Labour front bench, so sneeringly condescending was her comment and implication inference about the England flag. She thinks an England flag is something to be ashamed of and a European Union flag is something to wear around your neck, around your torso. You can choose Lady Nuggy if you like, though she's also a multi-millionaire. The Corbynites are utterly bereft and divided. They started out with a candidate on day one, Rebecca Long Bailey. But now they've got two candidates, Ian Lavery, the chairman of the Labour Party, a mine worker who barely held on to his seat, but who fought a valiant effort inside the shadow cabinet to try and stop this Europhile U-turn that caused the Labour Party so much grief at the general election. He's a fine man, a top man, but he can't get on the ballot paper because Rebecca Long Bailey is already the official Corbynite candidate. There are not many left-wing Labour MPs, and if they're divided into two parts, then arguably neither Long Bailey nor Lavery will get onto the ballot paper. That shows the chaos and confusion inside the camp of Jeremy Corbyn. I'm going to tell you something shocking. They'd be better keeping Corbyn there's no reason for Corbyn to give up. There's not another election for five years. The policies of Jeremy Corbyn are all individually popular. Why not have a long period of introspection, a long search for a successor that can do the job, if it can be done, of rebuilding that red wall that Boris Johnson destroyed so comprehensively just over a week ago. I have nothing bad to say about Rebecca Long Bailey. In fact, I have nothing to say about her at all. And isn't that the point? There is nothing, really, to be perfectly honest and to be as kind as I can be. There's nothing there. Her glasses are on, but there's nothing behind them. So if I were her, I wouldn't run for now. I'd let Lavery, a real workers' representative, run as the continuity Corbyn candidate, but still better to persuade Corbyn 
not to go at all. Now I've got a poll here. Who would you invite for Christmas dinner? A, Boris Johnson. B, Emily Thornberry. C, someone else. <laughs> I'm definitely going for C. I don't know uh, about you. You can live vote now on my uh, Twitter feed. We'll be talking to one of the giants of the left in the United States of America, Professor Richard Wolff, about Donald Trump, about impeachment, about Joe Biden, about Bernie Sanders, about what's going to happen in the US presidential election year, which is very shortly to come about. And we'll be talking to the famous Syrian girl, partisan girl, the girl who bravely, when her life could have been at stake, stood up for the Syrian Arab Republic in its darkest hour, and who now has plenty to say about the debunking of the so-called chemical weapons attack at Douma, now utterly discredited, although you won't hear or see any discussion of that except here on the mother of all As I've said before, I would have been proud of the stand that I myself made for the Syrian Arab Republic, whatever happened. I'm especially proud now that we have almost won the war, but the key word is almost, because killing, dying, suffering is still going on because of the remnants of the Islamist alphabet soup that remain under Western and Turkish protection in one corner of the Syrian Arab Republic. But I took the stand that I did with no threat at all to my personal well-being. My first guest was not the same. She has become famous and become a hate figure, a real hate figure for all those who tried to destroy the Syrian Arab Republic. Her name is Maram Susli, though you probably know her better on social media as Syrian girl, partisan girl. Maram, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to be here. You were a big hit the last time you were on, and of course, uh, you had your uh, critics too. Uh, but the vast majority of people found you a very refreshing breath of fresh air. So welcome back. Now, let's start with the war, and then we'll move on to Duma. Uh, how stands the war today as we approach yet another Christmas where war is still raging, at least in part of Syria? Well, I want to thank you for saying we haven't won the war yet, although we are winning. Because to say that we've won the war is to accept the status quo as it is, which is a divided Syria with Idlib province being controlled by al-Qaeda and with uh, everything east side of the Euphrates River being divided up between the US and Turkey. And we have uh, been moving, at least the Syrian army has been pushing forward in Idlib and east of the Euphrates River. So the situation will eventually change. Uh, as you know, the Syrian government said repeatedly that the goal is to liberate every inch of Syria. And I want everyone to remember that that includes the Golan Heights. Um, so we will see how long that takes. Unfortunately, the neocons in the U.S. have sort of entrenched 
and found a way to still dig in and continue to occupy the Syrian oil fields, which they have now stated has been their main goal. Well, Donald Trump uh, openly stated, I like oil, he said, and he's openly stealing in what is undoubtedly a war crime. I mean, it's not prima facie. It is, without any fear of contradiction, a, a war crime to steal oil from a country in which you have no business and which you are militarily occupying is clearly a war crime. What's the situation in the rest of the country? Are these throat cutters still at large as a terrorist menace or is peace and quiet the norm in the rest of Syria? Well, other than Idlib, it's actually been a quite an improvement for the rest of Syria. Security is a lot better than it was a couple of years ago. And, you know, people are beginning to pick up and try to rebuild and, uh, you know, put their lives back together. Of course, unfortunately, because of the U.S. occupation of the oil fields and the economic sanctions, this has been slowed down. And the reason is they don't even want to make money off that oil. They just want to prolong serious suffering in, to, for Israel's sake at the end of the day. Are the refugees coming back? Um, from Lebanon especially, the refugees are coming back. Uh, in Europe, some of the governments of Europe are actually blocking Syrians from trying to return to, ah. to Syria, so, which is interesting. Who would have thought it? Uh, the, there's an amnesty, isn't there? Everyone is welcome to come back. Absolutely. And the more uh, Syrians outside of Syria, the worse for Syria, because it's caused a brain drain as well. You know, anyone with a degree or especially medical doctors have been poached by Germany, which allowed them expedited entry into Germany uh, from Syria if they have a medical degree at a time of war, which was a terrible thing to do. So absolutely, there is an amnesty for people to return. And so uh, for someone like me to call on all Syrian refugees to return to their country and to help to rebuild it. Uh, that's the correct call, isn't it? Absolutely, it's the patriotic thing to do. And uh, I'm sure that someone would try to twist those words or manipulate it some way, because there is an agenda to try to take people out of their homelands, uh, the same way that the Palestinians were driven away from their homeland. Uh, the Syrians have been driven away, and some people would like to keep it that way. Now let's turn to Duma, uh, the OPCW uh, finding uh, that uh, a chemical weapon had been used uh, by the Syrian government at Duma is now largely discredited. Uh, I'd say entirely discredited, except virtually no one knows that it's been discredited because whistleblowers from amongst the inspectors have concluded and put in writing uh, that the official story uh, that warranted a blizzard of cruise missiles, hundreds of them, at a million dollars a time, on Syria, was all based on a hoax. Tell us how that looks from where you sit. Well, you know, it's interesting because if we look back at during the Iraq war, you had Tony Blair saying he had absolute evidence that Saddam Hussein was going to attack the London in 30 minutes, or I don't remember exactly which city it was, but, uh, you know, they claimed that they had absolute evidence and then they launched the attack. And at that time, 
The OPCW actually said Iraq doesn't have any chemical weapons anymore. So at that time, the OPCW did have some credibility. But now, in the case of Syria, it turns out that they had to uh, put the OPCW in this very weak position and, and force it to destroy its own credibility in order to promote their war. And what's happened is that scientists inside the OPCW are unhappy with this. And so they've leaked emails to the to WikiLeaks, which of course Assange is in jail over, um, that the levels of chlorinated hydrocarbons or the level of chlorine that was in the walls and uh, you know in the in the room were basically at background levels that you would find in any home uh, that anyone that uses bleach cleaning products or anything like that, you would find those levels of chlorine in the home. But the OPCW actually omitted reporting those levels, um, which would have proved that no chemical chlorine attack took place. And of course, this comes with many other leaks that have happened over the last few months. I mean, in May, there was another leak by a OPCW engineer that said that the gas cylinder, which was found on the bed, would have had to have been manually placed there. He was British. Um, that was the British engineer. He said this, this uh, uh, weapon was neither dropped from the sky nor fired from a projectile. It had been laying on its side where it was. Which, if you saw the picture, it would make absolute sense because there's glassware all over the room that hasn't been destroyed or affected at all. And there's just this cylinder lying on a bed with, you know, how did it get there? So um, now that apparently there's 20 OPCW whistleblowers that have said that they're not happy with the final report that tried to, uh, you know, kind of claim or the final reporting on the report that it was a chlorine gas attack that came from the air and actually deleted those engineering reports that said that the gas cylinder was placed on the bed. And uh, this, led to, this led us closer to world war uh, than we've been since the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s because um, Syria's allies, uh, Russia in particular, nuclear armed, multiply nuclear armed, uh, well, they are in situ in the very places where Britain and France and the United States in particular were hurling Tomahawk uh, cruise missiles all based on fake news. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Absolutely. It's uh, the first time that the U.S. and Russia have been in the same theater of war, and they have not 
been on the same side of it, unlike World War II. So, um, you know, there was other things, the medical signs of the victims, none of them, none of the symptoms or the signs that they found showed that they died of chlorine gas. They must have died of something else. And the question is, how did they die? Who killed them and for, to what end? And you had uh, journalists like Jonathan Steele, which is just a mainstream British journalist, as far as I know, for the Daily Mail, spoke to one of the OPCW whistleblowers and he showed him documents that U.S. officials were pressuring the OPCW to find evidence of a chlorine gas attack and blame the Syrian government for it. Well, uh, there's uh, every reason to speculate that Western governments were not just covering up the truth about the Duma incident, but were actively engaged in creating it. Uh, in the run-up to it, we were repeatedly told uh, by Western officials uh, that such an attack was imminent, even though it made absolutely no military sense, still less political sense, for the uh, Syrian government to do it. So there's every reason to suspect that this was a deliberate false flag attack. Indeed, the Syrian government was within days of taking over the entire uh, area of Ghouta, and that's why the OPCW was even able to get in, because Al-Qaeda left the area and, uh, a few days later. Um, this is all reminiscent, of course, of the Iraq war dos dodgy dossier, you know, the, the, the WMDs that were never found. Uh, basically, they have a script, and they're just following that same script, and they have now you know, over this, the OPCW has lost all credibility. But the frightening thing is, in a few days' time, the OPCW will have the ability to attribute blame, whereas they hadn't before. So uh, this is, I think, an attempt to try to get Syria under a Chapter 7 UN Security Council resolution, the same way they did Iraq, and try to claim that, oh, they never got rid of chemical weapons. That's, that's the playbook that they play by. And of course, they have people like Elliot Higgins, which is a man they found in the UK who sells underwear and, and they made him into um, their spokesperson who attacks engineers like Theodore Postal or attacks anyone who tries to bring out the truth about not just this chemical attack, but all the chemical attacks that have happened in Syria. Because from the very beginning, uh, we have been lied to and the first chemical attack that happened in Syria was actually against the Syrian government and Syrian soldiers. So a Syrian government held area and Syrian soldiers were killed. That was the very first chemical attack. And that is why the Syrian government requested for the OPCW to enter Syria to investigate the attack. And on the day of their arrival was the chemical attack in Damascus that everybody heard about, which resulted in Syria giving up its chemical weapons. Now, you, you mentioned uh, Ghouta, uh, which brings back uh, memories uh, of me, uh, of, for me, of, uh, of Mother Agnes Mariam, uh, whose uh, archdiocese that was. Uh, I've often said that the Christian places in Syria are amongst, if not the holiest places I have ever been. Malula, for example, is just about uh, as pristine a Christian site uh, of, uh, of worship, of pilgrimage, as anywhere in the entire world, the people even speaking the language of Jesus, Aramaic. Tell us something about how the Christian people in Syria, as we're coming up to Christmas, how the Christian people, how close they came 
to falling under the knives of these head-chopping, throat-cutting jihadists. Unfortunately, some of them did, especially in cities like Kasab, uh, in the north-west of Syria, which was completely overrun by Al-Qaeda. And of course, Al-Qaeda even kidnapped nuns in Ma'lula and in uh, Saidnaya, which is another uh, very old Christian city uh, in Syria. So, uh, you know, it's very ironic to have people like Mike Pence claiming to be Christian and all these evangelical Zionist Christians of the United States, and all that they've ever wanted to do is to annihilate Middle Eastern Christianity. From Syria to Iraq to Palestine, they have been consistently attacking churches, and or if not they themselves doing it, as in the Israeli military, um, they would get proxies to do it, uh, such as Al-Qaeda in Syria. And the whole point is to try to segregate the Middle East uh, and to basically make purely Sunni states and purely Shiite states and purely Jewish states and purely Christian states so that they can pit them against each other. And having people live in a secular society is completely against that. And uh, where, will, will Christians be able to celebrate Christmas this year uh, in places like Aleppo, for example, or will they still be fearful? Well, they, the celebrations have already begun, um, and you'll be able to see videos of that and pictures of that on Twitter. And I think that this celebration will be bigger than the last, um, and hopefully in the future, uh, people will be able to be free to celebrate in areas that are now controlled by Al-Qaeda. Um, and of course, in Syria, we have a tradition that everybody celebrates everybody else's religious holiday. So you have Muslims frequently having Christmas trees and celebrating Christmas, and then you have Christians, you know, making food for Ramadan and the Eid celebration in their churches. So that is a Syrian tradition, and, and this war has not been able to change that. Maram, God bless you and protect you. Thank you for joining us again on the mother Thank of all talk shows. That's Maram Susli, who is a truly remarkable young woman. Syrian girl on Twitter, partisan girl, I think, uh, elsewhere. Syrian girl is the name she'll always hold for me, talking about the effort that was made now for the best part of a decade to destroy secular Syria in aid of the worst cutthroats in existence on the earth. It's really almost impossible to believe and our country, our government, and I'm sorry to say our armed forces, our special forces and our aerial forces have been misused by successive British governments to try and make them the special forces, the air forces of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. I find that almost impossible to believe. All logic screams against it. But what can we say of the United States, where the very organization which took down the Twin Towers, which killed almost 5,000 Americans on 9-11, 2001, the very organization, Al-Qaeda, is now the ally of this United States government and its predecessor. It's almost grotesque. It's almost impossible to believe. Yet that is what has happened. We have been giving 
military, financial, and political and diplomatic and media support to the worst people on the earth, all to get rid of President Bashar al-Assad, a man who not that long ago was living in Buckingham Palace as a guest of Her Majesty the Queen, who not that long before that was working as an ophthalmologist in a London hospital, who went down the mall in an open carriage with Her Majesty the Queen, who was proposed by Tony Blair to be the beneficiary of an official state honor. If you can make sense of any of that, you're a better man than me. Now, as I said uh, earlier, um, Professor Richard Wolff is quite possibly the, the greatest socialist in America. And I'm inferring, though I don't know it, uh, that his preferred candidate for the Democratic Party nomination would be another man who ran and was elected to office for many years in the United States as a socialist. Not quite the socialist that I would say I was, or I don't even think as Richard Wolff is. But Dr. Wolff may be as excited as me at the possibility of a President Bernie Sanders. I don't know either what his point of view on the impeachment farce in the House of Representatives last week is. But mine is that it is a farce, that it's going to strengthen Donald Trump rather than weaken him. So let's delay no longer. On the Skype now, I hope, is Dr. Richard Wolf. Dr. Wolf, welcome. Thank you very much, George. I'm glad to uh, do this with you. I uh, don't know if you recall, but 10 years ago, we shared a platform in New York, uh, after which I found I was booked in by the organizers to Trump Towers which was surprisingly nice and not nearly as vulgar as I expected it to be. So when I hear your name, I always associate you uh, with Donald Trump. So let's start with him. Uh, it's my view that the Democrats have made a major strategic error in this whole Ukraine gate business and the impeachment that they have helped, not hindered Donald Trump. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think you're probably right. The time will tell. Uh, the sad thing for us, those of us on the left here in the United States, or at least a good number of us, is that the Democratic Party, and unfortunately most of it, uh, not just the centrists of the Clinton type and so on, uh, they are lost uh, in the reality of the Trump victory. They didn't figure out what it was about. They cannot admit uh, their own failings, so they have to find scapegoats. Uh, for the first half of his term, the scapegoat was Russian intervention. Uh, when that petered out and they could not get very far with that, they commenced this um, impeachment game. Uh, that's how it appears to most Americans, even those who don't like Trump, that this is one more effort to, uh, instead of Russia, now the bad one is Ukraine, uh, this amazing interest in looking for scapegoats so that the Democratic Party does not have to confront the structural 
situation of a capitalism that is declining and that is hurting large numbers of people as it shifts the burden of its decline onto the mass of people, which, in all due respect, uh, ought to be familiar, I think, to a British audience since they've been going through that process even longer than we have here in the United States. Yes, quite so. Uh, help us with the technicalities. As I understand it, Nancy Pelosi was required to deliver the articles of impeachment promptly to the Senate so they could begin the trial of Donald Trump. But the last time I looked, that hasn't happened. What's that all about? Uh, the, the problem is a, a legal ambiguity. It is not crystal clear. It's nowhere spelled out uh, exactly what either promptly or appropriately or any of the other words uh, means. Is it a two days? Is it two weeks? Is it two months? What is going on? And precisely because this impeachment is not producing the avalanche of uh, negativity for the Trump people that the Democrats had hoped, my suspicion is that they're thinking that the longer they can keep this going, uh, the longer they have time to undermine the lopsided determination of the Republicans who control the Senate to bring this all to an end, the more it is to their uh, advantage. In other words, here you now have the country focused on this uh, theater of, a, of an impeachment trial. Uh, it isn't going well so far, so they're adjusting as they go along, and they found this little ambiguity, and so she's not turning it over for the trial that has to happen in the Senate, since everybody in the United States knows that all of the Republicans who remain the majority in the Senate have pledged that they will vote to um, acquit Mr. Trump, which is where the process legally uh, comes to a halt. You can't go any further. Uh, the, the Republicans and Trump have been very successful in converting uh, all of the issues that were raised uh, into a question of Republicans versus Democrats. This is a matter of struggle that most Americans have absolutely no interest in, believing fundamentally that it doesn't make much difference. Uh, it will not deprive Mr. Trump of the roughly a third of the people, maybe 40 percent, uh, who he can still count uh, on his side. It will not change the people who hate Trump. And so we sit in a kind of boring stalemate that is of interest only to the media who are required to keep it going, but has no deeper hold on anything of importance in this society. Let's uh, look at Trump uh, for a minute, if we can, Professor. He, he won these so-called Rust Belt states, the industrial and post-industrial heartlands of the United States, promising to make the smokestacks belch again, the mines to be productive again, the steelworks to smelt again. Has he achieved any of that? Absolutely not. I mean, nobody, even my colleagues on the right, let alone my colleagues in the center, uh, would argue otherwise. I mean, he has not uh, revived manufacturing. He has not saved the coal mines from further uh, closing down. Uh, he has not done anything uh, about the inequality. In fact, the inequality in our society, by all the usual measures, is worse than it was when he became 
president. The only concrete things he's done, the one that outshines all the others, was the tax reduction in December of 2017, a massive gift to corporate America, uh, amounting to many, many billions of dollars. That was a real achievement. At the time, the Republicans controlled uh, both houses of the, of the Congress. Uh, he delivered to the corporations and the rich uh, at the end, by the way, of a 20-year period where they had become relatively richer and inequality much worse uh, than it had been for a century in this country. Uh, at the end of that period, he gave the rich an even bigger gift than they had dared to hope for. The other thing he can claim to have done is really a, a, a wonderful textbook example of political theater. And again, I defer to you in Great Britain uh, with Mr. Johnson. You probably don't need me to tell you about political theater. But let me finish briefly. We have been told that the rest of the world is cheating us. Mr. Trump is going to protect us from the foreigners, those poor Central Americans who want to come to the United States like everybody else since we killed off the native population uh, two centuries ago. Uh, he has blocked this invasion of foreigners, and he is now busy pushing back against all of the other parts of the world, Latin America, Europe, India, but above all, of course, China, the country most Americans know nothing about and enjoy bashing. And he bashes. He's going to hit them with a tariff now, a tariff tomorrow, a trade war. It's all highly theatrical, full of cameras whirring, end result, absolutely nothing. The new treaty with Canada and Mexico, the so-called new NAFTA, is a minimal rewrite of the old one. And, we, and two weeks ago, he caved in because he needs it for his election and cut back the tariffs he had used to bash uh, the Chinese. Uh, just to show you how grotesque it is, each bashing of China carefully is edited to remove the harsh reality that roughly half of the goods that come in to the United States from China are made by subsidiaries of American companies who moved to China to take advantage of lower wages, to take advantage of higher profits. Nobody put a gun to their head. They voluntarily exchanged their technology for access to the low wages and the exploding market that is China. But all of that is, is pushed aside, and we have this uh, theatrical notion that the Chinese whatever that means in, in these folks' mind, are the evildoers who are being pushed back by the heroic Trump on a horse who's protecting us. It is, a, as I say, a textbook example of dealing with the contradictions of a capitalism in decline by a deft and insistent redirection of everybody's attention whether it be against immigrants, whether it be a bashing China, and now whether it be uh, an impeachment theater, anything, anything other than dealing with the economic realities of this society, which are as severely negative for the mass of people today as they were when Mr. Trump made use of them to uh, get into the White House.
Now, let's turn to the Democrats. Uh, you excoriated them uh, quite correctly uh, earlier. Uh, but let's talk about Bernie Sanders uh, specifically. He is, uh, what, what I see of what he's saying is as close to what you or I would say as anyone running and with a hope of winning the presidency of the United States could do. Have I got that? Have I characterized that properly? Well, I would say yes and no. Uh, let me do the yes, certainly. And this is a country, the United States, and here we are different from Britain, uh, at least in a degree, if not in kind. We are now emerging out of a kind of hibernation. Uh, imagine the, the image of a bear going in the winter uh, to hide in a cave. We've had 75 years of anti-communist hysteria in the United States, so severe, so sustained, that it literally meant that in the colleges and universities, it was necessary for young academics with even a passing interest in things of socialism or communism or Marxism or anarchism or any of those things to carefully disconnect himself or herself from doing so. My colleagues are people, even if they have some impulse in those directions, they never read a book, they never had a class, they never heard a lecture, they, they just don't know about it. And so they were caught up in the notion that capitalism was an absolute royal road to growth and prosperity forever. Amen. When all of that collapsed in the crash of 2008, a process was unleashed that is carrying Bernie Sanders, myself, and people like us like leaves in, an, in, in a torrent of a flooded river. Suddenly, everybody's catching up. Suddenly, capitalism isn't such a wonderful thing. Suddenly, being critical of capitalism is just this side of chic. And socialism is returning, and Marxism are returning. It's kind of a heady moment for folks like us, me, who've been teaching that stuff for a while, etc. Nonetheless, it is amazing to watch Nonetheless, I have to be uh, fair and honest, it's still a minority position. It's just enormously greater than it was five or 10 years ago, kind of astonishingly, but the mass of people are still under the pressure of the Fox News people on one end, but even the establishment, which remains anti-communist down to the depths of its soul. So what you have in Bernie Sanders is, and I hear I agree with you, about as far as anyone daring uh, to take the label socialist uh, can go. And basically what Bernie is doing should be understood as a kind of updated version of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, or what in Europe is generally called social democracy. He is not attacking uh, corporate America. He will uh, he says he will leave the corporations pretty much as they are. They will be subjected to a more progressive tax structure. There will be a more aggressive government providing uh, safety nets, welfare supports, job creation, and things like that. It is a New Deal, green or otherwise, and, and that's what he uh, is in favor of. I think, and here's why I guess I disagree a bit, I think 
that it may, I hope I'm wrong about this, but it may turn out to be that Bernie, who is by far the best and the most progressive of all the candidates, nobody else is really close, not even Elizabeth Warren, uh, who sometimes daringly uh, suggests it, but she really isn't. Um, my fear is that he will sh prove to be, ironically, the most progressive and at the same time, not progressive enough. In other words, he's appealing to the mass of the American working class to return to their hero of the 20th century, Roosevelt, by far the most popular, by far the most progressive. That makes a certain sense. But the problem is the American working class does have a historical memory. They fought very hard in the 1930s to get Social Security, unemployment compensation, a federal jobs program, and the first minimum wage, just to pick the four outstanding examples. And over the last 60 years, they have watched what they fought hard for and achieved under Roosevelt to be taken away from them, half by the Republicans, and it has to be said, half by the Democrats, which is half the reason they don't vote for Democrats. It's not that they're fooled that Trump or Republicans will be better for them. It is out of a rage and anger at the Democratic failure, not only to build on what was achieved in the 1930s, but even to protect it from being destroyed. And therefore, they may not be willing to fight again for a Bernie who's going to bring them what they have seen, which is even if you get it, hard as that is, it will then be taken away. How and why? Because you've left in place the big corporations who gather into their hands the profits that the mass of workers produce and use them, if not to defeat a new deal, well then to unravel it after it passes and they will then only support a candidate who says that and who shows some capacity to take the struggle further so we don't repeat the unhappy history of the last 75 years. Can he win, Richard? Can he win Absolutely. the nomination? Bernie could win. You know, the irony is most Americans and I'm speaking here not just as a left winger, which I am, but, but as someone who spends a lot of time talking to people across the political spectrum. He can win because everybody basically that I speak to says he's the only Democratic candidate courageous enough, consistent enough uh, to have anyone take him seriously. The rest of them look like the conventional clowns. Uh, that is, people who say the right thing, but with no conviction, who carefully modulate what they say so as not to offend uh, the rich uh, corporate donor class, which supports the Democrats almost as much as it supports mm. the Republicans. Uh, and whether that's Warren on the left end of the middle uh, or Biden or now Bloomberg or even the rumors of Clinton coming back, these people are deaf. They will not win. Uh, they will not prevail against Mr. Trump. The irony is the one they don't want to win, the nomination, Sanders, 
is the best shot to defeat Trump, because if you go to the working class areas, even in the American South, the only person they ever refer to as maybe getting their votes is Mr. Trump, excuse me, Mr. Sanders. And there should be no confusion about it. Mr. Trump was the extreme, and he got elected in large part because he said, I'm not like the all those others. Mm. And that's much something that only Bernie can say on the left. A spellbinding uh, tour of the horizon. Thank you very much indeed, Professor, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Dr. Richard Wolff, I don't know about you, but I need a break to contemplate all of that. Let's uh, take a quick break. I'm joined by hashtag Ask Adam. Welcome, Adam, to our uh, final show before Christmas. Indeed. You and I will be together in Scotland on the 18th of January. I saw that Michael Gove was in for uh, promotion. Yeah, uh, he's going to be going around the world uh, um, making trade deals. First stop, Colombia. I think we'll get a stonking <laughs> trade deal with Colombia, don't you? Well, I would hope that his priorities would be U.S., China, some of the big powerhouse of the Commonwealth. But you know, people it, will. People he might will stop, off. <laughs> stop off. <laughs> to blow his nose in, uh, in Colombia. One never uh, knows. Ask Adam, hashtag. The Flat Earther asks, I wish to ask Adam, how much of an economic boost can we expect to the economy in terms of trade, GDP, jobs, etc., when Britain signs free trade deals with the USA, Canada, Australia, China, South Korea, Japan, etc.? And do you think the EU will refuse to sign such a free trade deal with Britain? despite such a deal being in the EU's economic interest, because the EU is still trying to punish the British people for having the temerity to vote to leave. Good question. Well, such a good question. I almost expect John Burko to bellow out order, order, <laughs> before I stand up to answer. First of all, GDP isn't something I'm fond of. I'm fond of having a big one, but it's not the best measurement of genuine national wealth or even genuine national productivity, but it is what we've got, and I don't see people changing the measurement anytime soon. So that being said, of course, GDP and those other statistics that the caller mentioned, will no doubt go up whenever trade uh, barriers go down. Trade is always good for the economy. And there's an old saying by a Frenchman, quite ironically, in the context of today's politics, that when trade crosses borders, armies do not. So trade is a win-win situation for all countries involved. Now, though, to the bit about the EU. Michel Barnier, who, unlike uh, Juncker, who's gone off to retire in a wine cellar somewhere, <laughs> And Tusk, who's uh, no longer even the world's second most famous Donald, the duck is now returned to his number two place behind <laughs> Mr. Trump. Uh, but uh, Barnier is continuing, and he's going to be the negotiator. But I think and I hope that Boris's team will be a lot tougher, a lot more clever, and put down the iron boot a lot firmer than Theresa May's high heel, which was always sort of, uh, sort of floating off the ground as she prostrated herself before Barnier and the rest of them. And based on everything that Boris has said, he's taking a kind of no prisoners approach. There's going to be a firm deadline that there's either going to be a trade deal with the EU or WTO trading conditions by the end 
of 2020. He's also clear that he doesn't want what the EU wants. They want regulatory alignment, which would essentially be a form of Brino, Brexit in name only. But Boris said he doesn't want that. He wants a genuine, straightforward FTA, which the European Union doesn't like. Uh, the European Union has many on paper FTAs with lots of countries, but is it really free trade? Not really. The EU likes to impose strict conditions and then they call something an FTA when a few of those, the, the more ghastly parts of those conditions are ameliorated. Let's hope though that Boris really kicks that door down and if the shareholders of companies like Mercedes, Daimler-Benz, uh, who make Mercedes, uh, VW, Siemens and all the big mainly German companies and their shareholders say, come on Mr. Barnier, come on Mrs. Merkel, don't play politics with our money. I do think that a good trade deal is very possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually a bit more optimistic than, uh, than you sound there. Um, at first, the EU bureaucracy said that Boris Johnson's timetable of the end of 2020 was completely unrealistic, and they used that in the uh, general election campaign before the vote. But no sooner was the vote in and the scale of Johnson's parliamentary majority clear, uh, they sort of changed their tune. Uh, suddenly they wanted to hurry everything up and uh, they seemed more optimistic yes. uh, that a deal can be struck. For the reasons you mentioned, at the end of the day, you know, the European Union is a capitalist, free market, free enterprise uh, organization. That's what it exists for. They're very bad at it, mind you. But bad, perhaps, but that's yes. what their articles of association are. And to erect barriers between uh, the EU and Britain when we have a very substantial deficit with them, uh, in other words, they would lose more than we if, uh, if trade stopped, uh, it seems uh, to me unlikely that at the end of the year they're going to hold that up. So yeah. I'm thinking there will be a deal. I think if someone wants to learn how to negotiate with the EU, just read your book where you talk about how to stand up to bullies, mm. because that's what the EU is, whether on trade deals, whether on foreign policy, whether on ascension talks to new members who want to join. I don't know who would want to join the EU, but a few countries. Scotland. <laughs> yes. At least according to the SNP. Well, they have to get independent. You know, they're putting the cart before the horse there. But yes, <laughs> indeed, according to Mrs. Sturgeon, who is still on both the high road and the low and road. The low road. Well, that was one of your best lines. I have to use it What's next month. Pleasing. Uh, Patrick is on the line from Louisiana. He's got a question for you on a second referendum. Mm. Patrick, go ahead. Uh, yes, sir, Mr. Galloway. It's great to hear from you, gentlemen, as always. And a Thank very you. Merry Christmas to you and Adam both. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Um, I appreciate it. Appreciate it. I wanted to call about, the, of course, the Scottish referendum. And when I examine it from a historical context, a historical perspective, um, mm. Scotland, it seems to me, really economically speaking, in terms of Scotland coming into its own, really occurred with the Act of Union of 1707. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had the Scottish Enlightenment, you had such notable, influential figures as David Hume and Adam Smith and all the Scottish inventors and, 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 and innovators, etc., that existed in the 18th and 19th and into the 20th centuries. Um, and it seems to me that Scotland is really in no position to be economically prosperous and, and, and progressive 
uh, and, in, and in a position to thrive as well in a variety of respects without some sort of union with, uh, with the United Kingdom. I mean, the history just shows us to be the case. So, let me, I wanted to ask Adam, you as well, George, you know, since you're, you're, you're Scottish. Yeah, uh, and my, my, I've already laid out my view, so we'll, we'll let, leave this one to Adam. Uh, sorry, finish your question, Patrick. Sure. Oh, yes, 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 sir, yes, sir. Just, uh, does Adam, does, Adam, do you feel that Scotland, economically speaking, will kind of revert back to, I don't want to use the word backwater, but that it will, you know, be in, in, pr in pretty dire economic shape if it does decide to break away from the United Kingdom? Adam. Well, it's very interesting, Patrick, that you mention uh, the Scottish Enlightenment, and one of the reasons for that was Scotland, during the even the 17th century, but particularly the 18th century, after the Act of Union, had a far superior on the whole education system vis-a-vis -vis England, and especially in the Through sciences. Through most of the 20th century, that was also true. Yes, and the historical background of it is the Presbyterianism that informed Scottish education for a long time was more focused on pragmatic science than was English education, which uh, before the secularization of this part of the world was more informed by a more philosophical Anglicanism as opposed to the, this, this a more low church version of a Protestant work ethic which informed the Scottish egalitarian, or at least partly highly egalitarian in many ways, education system. Today, though, Scotland has even, when you compare a Scottish comprehensive to the average English comprehensive, Scotland is now below England, where for, as you say, a long time, well into the contemporary era, that wasn't the case. And economically, Scotland, which once had mighty industry from shipbuilding just being one of them, and great innovation, it's really fallen far behind, which again goes to show that money doesn't solve all problems. The Barnard formula, which exists in such a way that uh, taxpayers in most of the UK are subsidising uh, investment into Scotland, and it's actually made Scotland worse off than it was during the periods from 1701 into the early part of the post-war era. Now, I do think Scotland would be much worse off outside of the Union for economic reasons, and of course for cultural reasons, yeah, yeah. As, as, as you mentioned earlier, but like you and unlike some, I think let's have a referendum. Uh, unlike many, even on the Brexit side, who have sort of referendagitis because of the whole debo the debacle, I, I've always liked referenda and I like them now more than ever. Because, hey, it took a while to get there. I always win them. <laughs> yeah, you have a good record. I don't know, maybe Mr. Ladbrook will call you up and give you some sort of Christmas present. I, I hope so. Um, but I like referenda because when politicians are indecisive, and God knows we've had a lot of that, a referendum, a simple binary choice. And I say, let Scotland have it. No one should be prohibited from having a referendum if they want one. I think that Sturgeon would lose by a fairly similar margin to that which she and Salmon and the other fishermen lost in 2014. But let them have it. I like democracy. They I said like it was uh, a once in a lifetime. Uh, it, that might be the lifetime of a Sturgeon. Uh, but, but, but it's not the lifetime of a people. Well, you know, uh, Salmons do swim upstream. Well, they do. <laughs> it's going to have to, but we better not go into that. Um, now, the uh, my point to add to that, Patrick, uh, would be would be this: uh, it would be on the cultural point that Adam uh, just made, for the reasons I mentioned earlier. The idea 
that Scotland has more in common with Bulgaria and Romania than it does with England and Wales is quite obviously fanciful. Uh, we have been together for more than 300 years. We are grafted together like bone. Our finest hour uh, was spent together uh, when the Spitfires were overhead in the Battle of Britain. Nobody asked if the pilot was from Sutherland or Sunderland or Suffolk. They were part of the Royal Air Force that was defending this island against fascist barbarism. And we won, we prevailed as one people. And of course, in a long marriage, no doubt disgruntlement uh, can sometimes arise. Uh, no doubt a, a period of a conciliation, a period of separate holidays uh, might be uh, in order, but to divorce Scotland from England and Wales would be a profound economic and cultural mistake. I've been divorced more than once, uh, and there is no such thing as an amicable divorce. None. It never happens. And in a divorce, between two countries which had no reason to divorce. Scotland is not an occupied country. Scotland and England together occupied many other countries, most of the countries of the world. Scotland was an equal partner. In fact, often playing the leading role in the British Empire's expansion uh, across the globe. There are no tanks on the streets of Scotland. Scotland's not being robbed. It gets more money from the Exchequer than Sunderland or Liverpool uh, or South Wales. More, not less. And if you look at the political system, the media barons, uh, the editors, the correspondents, the talking heads on the television, the uh, people running banks, running big businesses in Britain, Scotland is disproportionately represented because we're quite good. Last word to you, Patrick. You know what, Mr. Galloway, you're exactly right. You can look at the Scottish influence in the context of the United States and the influence that the Scots and the Ulster Scots or Scots-Irish had on the United States. If it wasn't for the Scottish Spidemen, the United well, we, States would never have existed. Yeah. Patrick, we even gave you Donald Trump, but let's, uh, <laughs> let's quickly uh, yeah. uh, cover that one up. Thanks for the call, Patrick. I just let's... need to correct myself, actually. I said 1701, and I can already f hear the bagpipes the of anger. That was 1801 with Ireland. It's 1707. Yeah, well, 1701 was the Union of the Crowns, and yes. 1707 was, was the, the Union of, of the Parliaments, yeah. the Act of Union. Sean, in Stevenage. Go ahead, Sean. Evening, George. How you doing? Good. You want to talk about Labour? Go ahead. I did, I did. Uh, I, I rang you a couple of weeks back and, and I couldn't believe that 49% of working class folk were going to vote Tory. And you were right, they I did. I was, I was. You were... I was wrong once. I, I think it was 1978, maybe 77. <laughs> Blame the Bee Gees. <laughs> yeah. Blame well... the Bee Gees, Adam says. Go ahead, Sean. Yeah, you asked for people to comment on those candidates. Yes, and, uh, yes. Bluntly. 
The reason I ended up voting Labour, and I did hold my nose to do it because of Jeremy's U-turn on, on Brexit, and even my, my missus, which, as I said to you last time, you've, you've managed to spark her interest in politics. Good. She was getting disillusioned with Jeremy's pronouncements on Remain and all that, but voted Labour because we went to see John Pilger's film, Dirty War on the NHS, and I it's thought... Wonderful, wonderful film. Brilliant film. I shook his hand after that and told him it was a brilliant film. And... Uh, it's a shame it couldn't have been shown before the election. Well, that uh, was deliberately suppressed by ITV. I, uh, well, what can you say? What mm -hmm. can you say? But, and therein lies a point. All of those candidates you mentioned, I, I cannot bring myself to vote for any of them. They would be quizlings for the corporations and for the neoliberal interests. And I couldn't bring myself to vote for any of them. I don't know about the, the Ian fella that you mentioned at yeah, the end. I don't, not, I don't I mean, know that much about him. Yeah, you, uh, I mean, he's uh, more of a backroom guy, uh, but he represents a mining community. He was himself a miner. Mm. Indeed, he was briefly the president of the National Union of Miners, uh, Mine Workers, before he went into Parliament. He's a steady, canny lad, uh, but he's not really leadership material. Uh, he's not uh, charismatic in any way. Uh, he's not... Uh, particularly good speaker, and so on. But compared to the rest of these people in that derby, uh, he's the only racehorse there. I mean, I call it a donkey derby for a reason. For me, uh, you could see them down on the beach at Blackpool. <laughs> well, that's probably where they deserve to be. In fact, they'd probably stay there while the tide comes in, if I had my way. <laughs> no, I mean, it is a problem, isn't it, Sean, that uh, Labour is so bereft that they're going to choose between uh, Keir Starmer, Emily Thornberry, Jess Phillips, David Lammy. Yeah, I mean, I mean how he's got the nerve. I don't know why he's got the nerve even to show his face in no. politics, never mind run to be leader. He was one of the front ones briefing against Corbyn straight away in front of the news totally. in order to get an totally. opposite message. And, and, and he was a part of the coup. And I, the coup in 2016. And I, I implored Corbyn not to give him that job. That job which could make or break the Labour Party. And he did give it to him. And he remained loyal to all these people. The, the well, only, you know, Corbyn turned his back on the people that loved him and embraced the people that hated him, not well, knowing, think, apparently, that under their clothes were the short, sharp daggers with which they've now dispatched him. Well, a right night and a long knives, I think. Yeah. I, I voted for him in that leadership contest because I, uh, I've kept the union membership up yeah. over all these years, even though I'm no longer in manufacturing. I run my own small business now. Okay doing management consultancy, probably people should say, why are you still paying your union No, dues? good for you, mate. Good for because you. Because I'm a working lad. Yeah. That's why. Good for After you. After all these years, I'm... I'm as as, uh, as uh, Sir Van Morrison would say, you're a working man in your prime. Let's hear from Adam. Well, Let's hear from Adam on the Labour leadership contenders. Adam. Well, if... if, if if comedy was somehow listed on the stock exchange, it would be a time to buy, buy, buy. Because look what we've got. We've got Captain Cheekbones, Keir Starmer, who's the Brussels answer to the yeah, American he's a, he's Superman. He's a, uh, a, a Burton's Taylor model. You know what I mean? The, you know the model that used to wear the latest suits? In he's the, available in the... at every fine men's clothing <laughs> shop in Brussels and Strasbourg. We can't forget Strasbourg. No. Then we've got um, a snobbish 
British woman who hates the English flag but enjoys dressing up like the EU flag. Then we've got a gobby woman who talks only about herself and even then it doesn't make much sense in the English language. Then you've got Ginger Corbyn, you've got Blonde Corbyn, uh, you've got a man who makes uh, fun of people who have taken their own lives through a gunshot wound to their mouth in the Houses of Parliament. I mean, it really is. It's, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not just a dog's breakfast, it's a dog's buffet. It's absolutely, it's atrocious that a party that once, when, when, with the benefit of Google, anyone listening can check this out. When you look at TV and radio debates from the 60s, 70s, 50s, into the 80s, when there'd be a Labour man and a Tory man, occasionally a Liberal man there too, all three representatives of the, of the main national parties were articulate, they were informed, they were civilized, and none of those adjectives describe any of the candidates for, uh, for Labour leadership, which is, as someone who likes Boris Johnson, I'm quite chuffed, but as someone who realizes... I mean, what does one make of David Lammy oh putting dear. himself forward? I mean, first of all, he, he, he says he's the, he's the, he wants to be the first BAME, uh, leader, but Diane Abbott already ran uh, as the candidate mm. for leader. And then he says uh, that he's standing for the rights of refugees, having created more refugees than almost any other member of parliament. And when he's attacked, I know this for a personal fact, he plays the race card against anyone that attacks him. So if you attack him for things that he actually has done, has said, does believe, you get called a racist by David Lammy. How's that going to work? That'll look good on the, the national stage. Well, if the Labour leader was elected by Twitter trolls alone, he'd probably win with a 200% uh, margin of victory. Um, I don't know who's doing the maths, maybe one of his former frontbench colleagues. <laughs> uh, but no, it's the, the, the whole thing. He's sort of the human loudhailer. He's the human troll, essentially, because he says in real life what most people only say when hiding behind pseudonyms online. I it's think quite that disgraceful. Line. Uh, the human loudhailer will uh, live long. <laughs> Sean, thanks for your call and regards to your missus, please. Let's take a quick break after I tell you this. There's a second poll. What's in the Queen's handbag right now? A, a receipt from Pizza Express in Woking. <laughs> B, Prince Philip's car keys. We wish him a long life and hope he recovers from his recent uh, spill. Indeed. And C... Her German passport. Now, there's a thought. Maybe she'll stay in the European Union by invoking her former uh, Germanness. Okay, A, receipt from Pizza Express and walking. B, Prince Philip's car keys. C, her German passport. You can vote right now on my Twitter feed. Will in Singapore says, love your show. Say hi to Singapore. Love hi, your Singapore. That's uh, Adam's favorite country. Are you as amused as I at the prospect of an extradition swap involving Julian Assange in exchange for Anne Sakulas, the wife of a US spy who allegedly killed a young Brit, then skipped town? If you're ever in my city, you must let me buy you a mug or three of tea. Thanks for that, Will. I'll take you up on that. John says, uh, hi, George and Adam. With the UN report linking 120,000 deaths in the UK to austerity and with poverty rising, could we see cannibalism taking place among the homeless of the UK in the near future? John, that's just 
uh, ludicrous. Uh, but uh, austerity is over, isn't it, according to uh, your mate, uh, Boris Johnson? Well, I've never liked the term. I prefer the word administrative uh, errors because the, the money, the people in this country, like the US, like most Western economies, they're always spending money they don't have, which I'm totally opposed to. I think it's dishonest. I think it's immoral. I think it's a kind of theft from the poorest who always end up paying the burden of extreme debt one way or the other, either in the short term or the medium term, always in the long term. So what we saw is essentially not that the spending of money was being significantly curtailed, but that it was being spent on some things and not the others. And of course it was appalling when you saw money being taken away from pensioners and taken away from the needy, people that I still call the deserving poor, because in the 19th century people spoke much more plainly and much more honestly than they have in the post-Blair era where the English language has been ripped apart almost as much as the constitution of this country. Uh, so much for being unwritten. Tony Blair found a, a, a sharp knife and he ripped it apart nevertheless. But it does seem that when it comes to these issues of sort of social care, of the NHS, uh, of, the, of the deserving poor, uh, Boris is going to spend in ways in which Cameron and May did not. And one thing that really delighted me as someone who is the opposite of a Thatcherite, but someone who thinks Disraeli was the best prime minister this country ever had with Lord Salisbury being a very, very close second, is that the Conservative uh, Party and James Cleverly, the chairman in particular, is talking a lot about Benjamin Disraeli. And Benjamin Disraeli was all about a union between working class interests and traditional Tory interests. And Disraeli had these views from his earliest days when he was part of the radical Tory Young England group and into his later days when he gave a wink and a nod to Randolph Churchill, who himself formed the Tory democracy movement, a form of Tory radicalism, which took the country into lost decades of the 19th century. And so we'll have to see what happens. All governments are dishonest, and all government spending is a lot of smoke and mirrors, because as we were saying with the Barnard form formula, money isn't the solution to everything. Proper organization and proper efficiency with the money you have I think is more important than the amount. That being said, there's some very interesting signs, and I think the talk about Disraeli and the lowering of the volume on Thatcher is, for me anyway, a very hopeful development. Let's take a call. Sarkar in Glasgow. Go ahead, Sarkar. Hi, George. Good evening. In fact, uh, amazing show, mate. Thank you so much that both you and Adam are here. And it's a very Thank important you. question I have to ask you, George. Go ahead, sir. I mean, first of all, congratulations on getting bang on another prediction right about the elections. Thank now, you. George, the thing which I want to ask you is, you know, the SNP, off late, have literally gone ballistic since the election results came in. Yeah. They are going absolutely full, you know, lock, stock, barrel, asking for a second referendum. Yeah. According yeah. to them, every blame happens because of Westminster. Now, I'll tell you something, George, believe me, this is something which I've seen with my own eyes. You know the health, the police, the legal system, all these things are devolved in Scotland, but the drug problem which is so massive in Scotland. The SNP don't say a word about that. And believe me, everyone knows about that, but for some reason, none of the parties seem to talk well, about that. Well, they were that. all posing for a picture in my home <coughs> city of Dundee the other day, and they were all grinning uh, from ear to ear. Now, what they didn't divulge was that Dundee is the drugs death capital of Europe. I mean, And they've been in power for 10 years. What have they done about that? 
Zilch. And you know, George, the other sad part, and I'm saying this, and believe me, it's not newspaper news, because I know how newspapers work. With my own eyes, I've seen the way 14, 15-year-old kids are being proselytized to say, what a great project Scottish independence will be, how you guys are prisoners of Westminster. And on top of that, making kids fill up forms okay. at the age of 12 and 13 to say either you can choose to be a male or a female or prefer not to disclose a gender or consider yourself gender neutral. Really, are these things worth it to go for independence? Not a single discussion about policies, not a single discussion about Barnett formula, not a single discussion about how much they trade with UK compared to the rest of EU, whether they'll be a hard border or not. And these are the things they're focusing on, ignoring drug problems. What is the problem with SNP? When will they ever civilize? That's my question, George. They are, they are the, the Blairite party in Scotland. They have adopted all of the worst aspect of the Blair era and put a kilt on it. Am I right? <laughs> yes. Um, it's, there was actually a photo, and for legal purposes, it could have been photoshopped, but it appeared that Sturgeon was standing uh, next to two Scottish flags without the Union flag present, which is... No, she was. It wasn't photoshopped. So I that was genuine. Well, I yeah. mean, I just think that that's so insulting because, I mean, Britain is still... It's weird, surreal, still a member of the European Union, only for another month and a week, but we can't deny reality. I mean, there'll be a lot of celebrations uh, uh, in, in my bedroom after, I just, well, that sounds weird, <laughs> on the 31st. No need well, to get personal. Quite so, <clears throat> especially not when we're talking about Mrs Sturgeon. Uh, but no, the SNP are behaving in such a childish way, and it was frankly encapsulated by um, Nicola Sturgeon's celebratory sort of breakdance uh, when she was caught uh, off guard on camera when she found out that Joe Swinson I thought that was rather ugly seat. actually I, it was a uh, bit of for, uh, for a, a woman especially mm. I thought the schadenfreude on display was well rather uh, unbecoming I thought, I thought so too, because even though I'm about as far from a Lib Dem as day is tonight, I, I felt for, for Jo Swinson, uh, partly because she started her campaign by saying she was going to, she had every possibility of being the Prime Minister, which I suppose she still could if she gets appointed to the House of Lords and become the only Prime Minister from that House since one of my favourites, Lord Salisbury, but sh she ain't no Lord Salisbury. She ain't no Lord Salisbury. <laughs> Saka, thanks, an excellent call. Paul in Nottinghamshire. He disagrees with me on Bernie, so let's hear why. Paul, I, go ahead. Yes, I do indeed, George. Now, I agree with every single thing you say regarding other uh, matters, okay. political matters, but I cannot <coughs> agree with uh, what Professor Richard Wolfe was saying, that, uh, the academic in America. Yeah. And I'd just say to you, George, you know, just look at uh, Bernie Sanders' voting record. You know, you get a flavour of, you know, the sort of things that he supported over the years. You know, well, he, he opposed the Iraq War. He, he, he was he one of the very few to oppose the Iraq War. Well, but he voted, uh, George, to finance the Iraq War. He also supported the sanctions in 1998 against Iraq. 500,000 uh, you know, people died as a result of that. He supported uh, the bombing of Kosovo. You know, it's, it's absolutely shocking. He also opposed when Russia... And when uh, Crimea had uh, voted to join with Russia, he opposed a democratic vote, the democratic wishes of the Crimean people. You know, I could tell you lots of things, George, that... No, it's good, it's good uh, that you provided this uh, antidote, uh, because we yeah. mustn't get carried away. But my mm -hmm. caveat was this, Paul, and I, I remember saying exactly this to Professor Wolf. 
that he has the best politics of anyone who realistically could become president of the United States. Surely you'd well, accept that point. Well, no, not really, George, because, you know, uh, I mean, look at Tulsi Gabbard. You know, the thing she's I got no chance. about what he's voted on. But she's got, but, no, well, she's got better well, politics, she's maybe, George. maybe, she's, but she can't yeah. win. Well, she is growing. She's massively growing across the United States. I don't, you think, know, I don't see very, any evidence for that. Paul. Yeah. Well, well, what kind of uh, government will we have if Bernie did come to power? Well, you know, I well a lot better than uh, a lot better. Than, no, I'm not expecting him to bring socialism to the United States. No. Uh, no. That's a very long way uh, off. Uh, but yes. uh, it would be better than any democratic uh, president since uh, Roosevelt, in my opinion. And I think mm -hmm. uh, Richard Wolff, who's lefter than you and me, uh, uh, more or less conceded that point, didn't he? Well, he, yes, he, he did, George, but ask this question, you know, uh, will Bernie Sanders, if he became president of the United States of America, would he continue shoveling, you know, taxpayers' money into the pockets of the military-industrial complex? Well, not, not, yeah. If you look at his record, previous well, record of voting, yeah, it tells okay. you probably well would. Well, the statements he's making day and daily, and I see them every day, uh, are mm -hmm. remarkably... Uh, progressive, left-wing, militant. In fact, I often find myself saying to myself, perhaps you shouldn't go that far out on a limb at this stage, because I wouldn't yes. want anything to happen to him, as can happen to people who challenge the prevailing orthodoxy in the United States, if you know what I mean. Yes, I see exactly what you mean, George. Paul, yeah, a very good call, uh, and it's always useful to... Uh, be the antidote to any unwitting uh, uh, hysteria. Paula is in London on Jeremy Corbyn. Paula? Oh, hi. Welcome. Oh, hi. Go ahead. Um, uh, I don't agree with you on your new party. I don't agree with you with uh, sharing the platform with uh, Faraj. Um, I can't hear you because I have the phone... Um, I have the computer down, so otherwise it will be an echo. Uh, turn the computer right. down, Paula. Yeah, we all heard you perfectly yeah, well. Uh, if I turn the computer down, can I then hear y yes. what George is no, saying? Yes, you, you, you'll just hear me from the phone. So go ahead now. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as I said already, uh, I don't agree with you with... Um, so many things. Mm -hmm. But on Jeremy Corbyn, mm -hmm. um, uh, where do I start? Um, I have in front of me an article from Jonathan Cook, um, the plot to keep Jeremy Corbyn out of power, dated July 2019. Mm -hmm. And I think, in my opinion, that should be on all, all across newspapers and media. This mm. is the utopia. Well, I, 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 I recall uh, circulating it mightily uh, back then uh, myself, so perhaps that's something you agree with me on. This is, you know, this is a sheer ignorance that has been going on for the last hundred years since we all became satellites of the U.S. Um, 
So, as I was saying to your producer earlier, I moved to this country in 1997, escaping Silvio Berlusconi in Italy, who won for the second time, you know, <laughs> with a landslide. And I just could not believe I was living in a fascist state after 30 years. You know, I moved to this country... I was but Berlusconi, Berlusconi's Italy was not a fascist state. Otherwise, Berlusconi would not have gone to prison and he would still be the leader. Why do you, above all, why do you, above all, as an Italian, uh, toss such uh, words around as if they were confetti? Sorry, I didn't get that at all. What, well, 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 well Berlusconi was not a fascist leader, and his state was not a fascist state. If it were, Berlusconi would not have gone to prison, and he would still be the leader. Why do you, as an Italian? throw words like that around so careful, carelessly. That's the point I was making to you. Carelessly? I mean, collusion with mafia. <laughs> but Sorry. collusion with mafia is what prime ministers of Italy have been doing for a hundred years. It doesn't make exactly it a fascist my, state. Precisely my point. No, it isn't. Precisely my point. It isn't your, precisely your point. You said that Berlusconi represented a fascist state. And I'm just tired of these words being bankrupted and devalued by leftists like you uh, who use them falsely and thus weaken their importance in the popular discourse. Because he's I agree a right entirely. So, yeah, agree right. entirely. Right, so how would you, you how would you how would you describe Silvio Berlusconi then? As a I right mean, as a right wing populist leader who was there today and gone tomorrow. He's now nothing, nobody. Well, <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could share your... Uh, well, what, what, power your do, what power does Berlusconi have now? I mean, talk about, well, talk about yesterday's man, my goodness. Um, does the, the name uh, Matteo Renzi rings any bell in your... In your yes, but you... He's you, God's son. It's you that mentioned Berlusconi, not me, because I no longer think about Berlusconi. It was you that brought him up. Well, you probably... Anyway, you probably anyway, Paola, 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 let's move over. Move, move so on what I am to your saying point. Is, yeah. Yeah, what, moving on, I am saying this, that uh, I... <laughs> Stupidly, I thought that Tony Blair was better than Berlusconi when I moved to this country in 1997. They were bosom buddies. Precisely, precisely. And I, you know, I was, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about it. I just wanted to get out of that regime in my mm. country. Mm. And basically, 22 years later, that's what I am trying to say. 22 years later, I found myself in the same position, if not worse. You know, it has come back to me with a vengeance with this regime. Um, Which so regime? The Boris Johnson one that was Boris elected Johnson last week. Regime. And I can't it, how is it a regime? Uh, let's deal. Ontology is very important, Paula. Uh, you mustn't use words that bankrupt them of their meaning. Boris Johnson won a democratic election here last week. It's an imperfect democracy, but he won well, it on, right, he let's, won let's it on the popular vote. So it's not a regime. Well, let's get straight to the point. What I wish you role? Would. Sorry, I mean, 
I'm, I'm sorry to open a parenthesis, but you are talking to, despite I've lived here 22 years, you are talking to a non-native, and I admire your eloquence and your, you know, the way you can play with words, but I, I'm sorry, I could do that in my language. I can't. I'm not mature enough no. to do it in, in... So I, I appreciate you, you know, taking me on uh, bankrupting meaning and whatever, but I am still because not... All I'm saying uh, is you have to, no, all I'm saying is you have to use words carefully. Uh, uh, an, elected, right. an elected government is not a regime. A right-wing right. populist so is not a fascist. What, uh, and what, if, you, right. if you overuse these words, you, you devalue their meaning. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Now, my point is, what, in your opinion, the role of the media, talking of bankrupts, mm. uh, what's, in your opinion, the role of the media? Well, and uh, going back to Jonathan Cook. Yeah, uh, well... John, and going John, back to Lee Camp. You know, I yeah. watch Lee Camp, I mm. watch you, mm. I read Jonathan Cook, I support Andrew Murray, uh, I have given so much of my little money to independent media. But Good. the bottom line is in my opinion, is we need to get rid of mainstream media. Well, that's a good... Well, let me stop you there, because of the hour uh, only. Uh, uh, what I think about the mainstream media is screamingly evident every Sunday night for three hours on this radio and television show. Uh, it is my case, and I made it again at the beginning of this show, uh, that the only place on any significant media platform that you will hear the kind of views you've heard here this evening is here on the mother of all talk shows. And Adam represents uh, a different current, a different point of view, a counterbalance, if you like, in the final hour uh, of every show every week. We have to make our own media. We will never be able to counter uh, the power uh, of the existing mainstream media unless we stop buying it, unless we stop paying for it. And we can do that. We are millions of people. We are not a majority, but we are millions of people. And we must get out of the habit of imagining that someone else will deliver uh, salvation for us. We must take that salvation into our own hands. That's what I tr try and do every day on social media, on Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, here on the mother of all talk shows, and every other place I can. Thanks for the call. Suraj is in London. Go ahead, Suraj. Hi, George. Absolute honor to be speaking to you. I've been following your stuff for the last uh, four to five years, since I was about 17. Fantastic. Um, Great. Uh, it's a very refreshing to hear these viewpoints from an MP from the House of Parliament. So, a lot of respect from the Utahum accent, Ireland. Thank well, you, I'm my friend. Love that at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we must talk about Ireland, actually. We must talk about the political situation in Ireland now, uh, because the elections can't be far distant in Ireland. Uh, anyway, on yeah. you go, Suraj. Uh, well, on that point, in terms of Northern Ireland, it is absolute shambles up there. My family live in Belfast, and the political scene is so polarized. It's either Sinn Féin or DUP. It's very hard to get a meaningful result. And it's also quite irritating when the, the left side of the 
the spectrum there, the Sinn Féin, don't even show up to the House of Parliament and make decisions on behalf of their voters. It's quite, uh, you don't really know what to do at that point. Um, my question, though, is regarding uh, Labour's loss in the most recent election. And it ties into kind of a deeper thing happening in Western society at the moment, which I think from my understanding of what I've read is this shift of grand narratives. The working class and general populace of America and the UK are being more and more polarized from their original voting parties, such as the Democrats or Labour, because the grand narrative is shifting and changing with the left sort of encompassing this moral vanguard of what you can and can't say. And I could not agree with what you were saying earlier to your previous caller about these words being thrown around and how they ultimately lose value because what is a fascist and what is well, a racist. Uh, yeah, now that exactly. And I was just thinking today on the last word that you used, I'd like to ask people if they think that hurling the word racist at someone is likely to change that someone. Is it likely to, <laughs> is it likely to convert them, to persuade them? Uh, to, to soften them? Uh, or is it likely uh, to make them bristle uh, with uh, indignation and anger and make whatever it is that you have found fault with worse than it was before you brandished that word? Do you see what I'm saying, Suraj? Yeah, I would be very inclined to agree with the latter. I think it definitely has the latter effect. It certainly seems to. Uh, the the uh, so. fanatics for the EU spent the last uh, four years uh, nearly, uh, three years, three and a half, uh, calling everyone who disagreed with them uh, a thick northern racist. And yeah, the, yeah. The, the North answered back a week on Thursday, didn't it? Yes, they did. And George, I would say to that it's so strong that when I logged into Facebook after the Brexit vote, for, for which I voted leave, similar to yourself, mm. um, predominantly for the reasons of the, the EU's interaction with the African continent and how it is subdued in, in its economic policies towards Africa. Very good point. That, that's something I never heard spoken on the media. I was very sad. And when I brought it up to people, even to this day, who are staunch uh, Remainers, but also have generally in their heart are very good people and want to see the world a better place. I bring this point up. And they look at me with blank expressions. They never yeah. knew it was happening. <laughs> We're racists for wanting to stop overwhelmingly <laughs> white people uh, coming to uh, Britain uh, from the European Union. Uh, but it's not racist for the European Union, <coughs> excuse me, to build a fortress of itself against the people of the African continent and of Asia. Uh, it's, uh, it's a complete distortion. Uh, of, yeah. uh, of the idea of racism, don't you think? I think it's very bizarre. I think it's an extremely bizarre world we live in. And that ties into the bigger question. How does a kind of uh, party for the people, which Labour claimed to be, shift its grand narrative, grand narrative to then encapsulate its original voters while also maintaining, I guess, uh, the acronym is weird, the Western, educated, and industrialized, rich, and democratic. How do they keep both on the same page and move forward for the best of society? What's your views on that? Well, that's the best call of the night. That's my first view. Uh, and uh, the second point is there's not enough time to do it justice. Uh, I'm no doubt we will return to it. Uh, but the one thing you don't do uh, is ditch what you already had uh, for the chimera 
uh, of what you uh, think you would like to achieve. The task is to keep what you already have and to build on it. And that's not what Labour did. Labour has been waging a culture of war against the uh, people of its own heartlands for many decades. I'll give you an example. I published, or rather reproduced, uh, data that the European Union themselves had published earlier this week, which showed that nine of the ten poorest areas in the European Union in Northern Europe were all in Britain. Nine out of ten of them were in Britain. Uh, a rush of knee-jerk uh, leftist response was, yeah, under the Tories. And yeah, they all voted Tory last week. But precisely the same nine out of ten were still the poorest in the previous ten years when Labour was in power. Adam. Well, <clears throat> I think that that's something that's very crucial, not least because when you look at industries that have been decimated due to membership of the European Union and due to the knock-on effects of membership, when you look at fishing, coal, car building, which is a huge one that people don't talk about. When we talk about the steel Even industry. Even we're all still driving cars. Still, still using steel, still eating fish. I mean, all of this uh, still needing electricity, which countries throughout the world, including Australia, wisely use coal. And you have modern clean coal technology, which gives you the best of both worlds for a good price. Things are entirely backwards because of membership of what isn't a free trading club, but a corrupt, rotten to the core cartel. And I'll be so, so, I honestly think that Britain leaving the European Union ranks among the most positive polit political events in my lifetime alongside the Berlin Wall falling down. And I don't say that lightly. Just quickly, one of the other points uh, that the caller mentioned about this being sort of an epoch-making time. I think one thing that a lot of people have failed to notice is that unlike in the 80s and into the 90s, when the left-right divide was all about economics, Milton Friedman versus John Maynard Keynes, Thatcherism and Reaganism uh, versus, let's say, footism and socialism of a democratic nature, it's now, no, no one really talks about economic theory anymore. Everyone is talking about cultural issues. The left-right divide is cultural. It's no longer economic for two reasons. One, because a culture war is taking place and the working class are fighting back. And number two, because everyone is frankly equally economically incompetent. Uh, Suraj, thanks uh, for that call. Clear the decks. We have a legend on deck. It's Norma in Bristol. Last call of the evening. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Hello, Adam. Um, Hi there. It's, uh, it's a minority interest, really, and we've only got a few minutes. But um, I'm a bit upset because the BBC Red Button is going to be discontinued at the end of January. Now, um, for us older people, we might not have smartphones. They haven't all got computers. But I can see so quickly like the results of tennis, the football, the tables, orders of play. And if that's taken away from us, we're going to lose all that information, you know? What is that? Is that like a kind of C-fax as used to oh, be? Oh, no, you just, you just put on BBC Word, you press a red button, and you've got a list of things. I always do the sport to see what's happening, and it's so quick and easy. 
I wish I didn't know what happened in the sport today, but that's another matter. Oh, I matter. do. I know it. Oh, I know it. Oh, what do you want to know if Chelsea no. beat Tottenham? Well, I know they did, they did uh, yeah. and I was happy enough about that because I like Jose Mourinho. But having watched Manchester United lose 2 nothing to the bottom of yeah, the table, Watford, Watford uh, I must yeah. say I was in uh, despair. So this red button is disappearing when? Uh, the end of January. And I mean, to be perfectly honest, um, you know, we are going to stop having our, in, in July or May, the licence fee is going to be, uh, you've got to pay it again. And I just think that perhaps a better idea is to not um, cut the red button, but perhaps pay some of these big presenters a little bit more money, less money. I a bit less money, money. yes, less uh, money, indeed. Yes, uh, Norma, thanks uh, for that. I had no idea of the red button question. I will look into it and uh, see if there's anything I can advise uh, in due course. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time, same place. Spread the word. I'm still looking for my first million. My first million viewers and listeners, of course. That's the point. Thanks to Adam Gary, as always. Thanks to the very clever uh, men and women, overwhelmingly young, but one of them bringing the average age up, uh, <laughs> that make this show possible every week. And a big thanks to you for making this the fastest growing show on the planet. And I really am not exaggerating. May you all have a lovely Christmas and see you next week.